I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Mick Antoniv, who is the Labour Assembly Member for Pontypridd. Uh, but you're not originally from Pontypridd, are you, Mick? No, I think I'm probably what would fall into the category of a sort of internationalist politician in that uh, I was born in uh, Aldershot. My dad moved to Reading looking for work in the, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, but he was a refugee from Ukraine after the war. My mother was from Denmark, so I suppose with that Danish-Ukrainian born in England, moved to Wales, and now representing a Welsh constituency. Uh, I suppose I can claim to have a certain sort of international flavour to my my background. Because I think you came to university in Cardiff, didn't you? Yeah, I came in 1973. Didn't pick Cardiff for any particular reason other than it looked reasonable for, for law, but in those days... You know, if you came from a working-class family and you got the chance to go to university, you were really a, an exception within, uh, within your community. And it was the same within the Ukrainian community I was brought up in. So going to university was actually a, an enormous shock. And, of course, I arrived in Cardiff, didn't know anyone. There was no accommodation. I think I spent my first night in the uh, what was then the Abbey Hotel for £3.50 a night, whilst I was looking for accommodation in Cardiff, and it was in that particular hotel I understood why they put plastic sheets on mattresses in some hotels. So it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience, but I got lodgings in um, Taff Embankment in Grangetown, and again, within a month of uh, arriving in Cardiff, we were on flood alert, because you had the old Cambrian castings across the river, uh, and of course the river, before the floodworks had been done, was already lipping over, and uh, we were then really put on alert to evacuate. So it was a sort of strange first few months experience being in Cardiff. But the, the affinity for me was, was that uh, having sort of been brought up in a Ukrainian community, was almost being able to identify a little bit with another nation, with uh, another language and culture, because you know that was the way I'd been brought up, that you were sort of in a mixture of cultures and so on. So Wales was a place that once I'd come here, really, like many people, uh, never really wanted to go back anywhere else. What was it that drew you to the law then, uh, Mick? Well, to be honest, I'm not really sure why I chose to, to go into law, only that it, it sounded quite posh and it sounded like a, a good thing to do. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't any good at the sciences, to be honest. I didn't find the sort of maths. Uh, music might have been an alternative, art might have been an alternative, but law just had a, had a sort of an interest. And I suppose, if I'm totally honest, my best mate at school at the time, he said he was applying for law, so I thought, well, maybe I will as well. So pure coincidence. I think you got involved with the National Union of Students uh, when you were in Cardiff, uh, didn't you? And, I mean, previously, had you been involved in politics when you were at school? The upbringing I had in the Ukrainian community was an incredibly political one. You had a mixture of people who had been through labour camps, had been taken by the Germans as forced labour. You had those that were nationalists. You had those that had been in the German army. You had uh, former social revolutionaries, former... There was a a mixture of politics. And, of course, with uh, an emigre community that is almost forced out by the events of the Second World War, these were people who not only couldn't go back to their homeland, 
they were people who basically were not even able to have contact with their homeland because of the uh, way in which the Soviet Union operated. Of course, many of them, their families, as, as my dad's entire village was deported to Siberia. But you know, we knew very little about that. In fact, we only knew these sorts of things after the uh, collapse of, of the Soviet Union. So it was very political. And as a child, I would be regularly on demonstrations outside the Russian embassy, picketing uh, Russian uh, politicians or Soviet politicians. Uh, I remember when uh, uh, Schleppen came, the former head of the KGB, I, I was there demonstrating. So, And we would demonstrate through the town, but also politically in the sense that the community wanted to create its identity and to tell people about its experiences. So it was political in that sense. So the first thing I got involved in in Cardiff uh, University was to join Amnesty International. And there we would be, uh, it was a much smaller organisation than it is now, it was embryonic. It was about really writing letters to political prisoners. And uh, so I would get letters translated into Ukrainian, to Ukrainian political prisoners. There were political prisoners we had in Spain and in Latin America. So we organised uh, around that, and it was around about that time that um, I became more interested in party political, in the sense that I joined the Labour Club and became more engrossed within uh, socialist studies and the, uh, the Labour groups. Of course, politics was in many ways more diverse and vibrant at the time. And then also the big campaign that I really got in and spent a big chunk of my life in, as so many people did, was the uh, anti-apartheid campaign, uh, which led to eventually the formation of the Welsh anti-apartheid movement and really one of the most effective anti-racist, anti-apartheid campaigns within the whole of the UK. That, I think, sort of inevitably led me to getting involved in student politics. So in 1977... I became president of the National Union of Students in Wales, which um, was a really interesting experience and an interesting time, and I think taught me a lot in terms of politics, the media, the engagement, the, the practicalities of how you engage. You know, it was very idealistic at the time. The resources we had were very limited. I was the third National Union of Students Wales president and of course one of the big campaigns then was devolution and people talk about the devolution referendum that set up the assembly here but many people forget the long years of struggle you had in campaigning to get to the 1979 devolution referendum and that was a campaign that in many ways at the end of it was incredibly demoralising because the logic was there for the campaign but what it also taught us is that referenda are rarely about the thing that they're meant to be about. And the referendum on devolution, to be honest, was more about the status of the then Labour government under Jim Callaghan than it was about devolution. And I still remember after that devolution vote in 79, you know, really just thinking how, what the future for Wales was. Uh, you know, would there be another opportunity? Would there be another uh, chance at it? And fortunately, there, there was, because I think there have been so many benefits from devolution for Wales in terms of its identity, in terms of its status and recognition within the world. But in '79, it was a very, very different uh, time. And, of course, that then led on to uh, not only uh, the incoming Margaret Thatcher government. 
it led on to all the things that begin to be changed that we quite valued in terms of some of the publicly owned industries, the whole idea of a collective organisation within society, and of course then ultimately uh, the miners' strike. And the miners' strike, and people talk about it now in terms of fairly romanticised terms, but uh, for those who remember, you know, I was a young lawyer by then, uh, representing miners being arrested on the picket line, often being beaten up and assaulted, events at Orgreave, but going along to the food kitchen, seeing the food being distributed, and the breakup of families and the uh, bitterness that I think still remains amongst many people to this day. Coming from a Ukrainian background, mm. and from a background which would have seen the Soviet Union as an oppressor. There was, I think, an assumption, or I've had the assumption in the past, that people who come from that sort of um, perspective often turn out to be quite right-wing. Mm. Um, but that obviously wasn't the case in your uh, position, Mick. Why was it, do you think, that you gravitated mm. towards the left rather than the right, given that gravitating towards the right might have been the obvious thing to do, given the uh, oppression of the Soviet Union towards your community? Well, I, I think it's... I mean, <laughs> within Ukrainian politics, as within all politics, there's been a left and a, a right. But after the events in the Soviet Union and under Stalin, of course, so the social democracy movement became less and less, and nationalism became, became the greater issue. And, of course, the, the, to be honest... Uh, uh, the, the links between left and right were actually a little bit more blurred within the sort of nationalist politics at that time, and maybe that's uh, uh, something that we're seeing a little bit of to this day. But for me, once you started talking about human rights and democratic rights, it clearly put me on the socialist side, uh, and that's how my politics developed. And, of course, I did find amongst others of my age within the Ukrainian community uh, and uh, abroad in Ukrainian diaspora uh, who were very much on the, the left as well. So, to be honest, I spent more of my engagement within Ukrainian groups and campaign groups that were... Uh, linked to uh, linked to the more progressive and socialist movement, so in the um, in the seventies, when uh, you know we worked quite hard to establish links between groups within Ukraine and within Eastern Europe, uh, and would be involved in you know, taking documents through and couriering uh, documents in uh, into the eighties. It was mainly the socialist groups that were the most effective at it, partly because the nationalist groups had been so infiltrated by the KGB. So every time someone went over to take documents through or to establish contacts with uh, some of the emerging political groups, uh, they would inevitably get arrested. And certainly on the, on the left side, uh, I don't recall anyone being uh, caught or arrested during those days. So in terms of your legal career, there was, I guess something of a parallel between your mm. developing political attitude and the kind of law that you got involved with. Because I first remember you uh, mm. from quite a few years ago when you were really uh, defending people who mm. were suffering from their workplace, yeah. essentially. So you got very much involved in that. So I suppose 
for you, while you would have started off uh, not really perhaps knowing why you were going into law, mm. it soon became something that was part of your whole personality linked to your political development as well? Well, there are different ways of looking at law. There is law seeing it as administrative processes and uh, an occupation where you can potentially make a lot of money out of it. There is also the realisation that the law is almost like the oil that enables society to work together. And if there is injustice within society, Society, the law is a mechanism by which you change that balance. So I was very fortunate in that I, I got a job with a socialist firm of solicitors, Thompson's, which had uh, uh, long historic connections with the labour movement going back to the Poplar Borough councillors in London in their protests when the councillors were arrested for refusing to set a rate because of the impact it would have on their, on their communities, to really all the political disputes going through the 30s, the 40s, but also all the developments of workers' rights and workers' laws, from health and safety to the big legal cases establishing rights for workers in various areas, compensation and uh, representing uh, workers during uh, disputes. So, uh, you know, as a student, I'd been to Grunwick. I was there several times during the uh, the mass picketing at Grunwick. That, that was a camera factory, I think, wasn't it? It was uh, a developing, it developed film, and the film would get posted out, so the postman refused to handle it. It was one of those areas, really, of the exploitation, particularly of a uh, predominantly ethnic workforce, something today that would probably make you know enormous headlines and so on you'd say was injustice but then uh, it wasn't quite seen in that particular way and there were very very brave uh, women there who I met a number of times subsequently who you know, stood on the picket line who took who took a stand and that was incredibly important but equally important was the solidarity uh, there that, that was shown for for these particular workers and sadly it was a it was a a battle that was uh, lost, one of many battles that occurred then through the 70s and into the 80s, that uh, most of which unfortunately were uh, were lost, but had consequences, I think, in terms of the way people saw these things. But working, you know, being very committed as a political activist and a socialist and with you know, things that it seemed to me were important uh, to my life, far more important than the idea of what you could earn or careers or whatever, was what you can actually do to change people's lives. And, of course, having cases that did change the law for the benefit of working people was a tremendous thing. It also gave me the freedom to merge the work I was doing with politics and the realisation that the law is the most political of all the elements that face us. You know, it's not a process, it's not a book of rules and so on. The law is pure politics. It is the law that changes the balance of power, that, uh, that determines people's rights, what they can, what they can't do. And therefore, I had, I, in many ways, I had the utopian job of being able to not only work as a lawyer in an area that I felt was really important, but it gave me the freedom to, to work within the labour movement more broadly. And of course, when the opportunity came, I mean, I think I was 33 years doing that, so when the further referendum came and the assembly was set up, uh, and then after 10 years, when it suddenly was given uh, legislative powers, it was almost a sort of natural move from what I'd been doing in my last few years, which had been you know, working on laws. I worked very heavily on the corporate homicide legislation, which was about really corporate accountability of companies for deaths in the workplace. 
and other pieces of legislation. In many ways, it was a, a, an ideal and a fairly seamless transition over and, of course, enabled me to then do work on things like asbestos, on the protection of agricultural workers, of course, more recently, the trade union legislation, and, of course, now looking at the social partnership bill. In a way, it might be seen as a bit surprising that it took such a long time for you to make the transition from being a lawyer to being a politician, because you'd been the president of NUS Wales, young guy. These days, perhaps... Many young people, having done that, would be moving into politics a lot more quickly. I mean, was it simply the fact that the Assembly didn't exist? Didn't you have any aspirations to go to Westminster? Well, I think the answer is uh, I didn't really. I mean, I I was not particularly interested. Um, And also, I come from that generation, I think, within the Labour Party, where, you know, if at some stage you became an elected representative, it was a sort of a a culmination of activism rather than something you start off from the beginning and choose to do. You know, it was not so much a career path as more a a vocation. But I was. I mean, I was a councillor from from 1981 to 89 on South Morgan Council. Of course, there as a councillor with uh, other current Assembly members, Jane Hutt, Julie Morgan, Mark Drakeford. So there was a group of us then on what was a very vibrant council body that we took control from the Conservatives and I thought was an incredibly uh, good and, and effective council at the time. But of course after that then, uh, my wife and I, we adopted uh, children and you then have to make a choice between what you can realistically do and you obviously put your children first. So I decided, you know, I'd seen so many people who I knew were councillors who said the one thing they regretted was not seeing their children grow up. So uh, having gone to the rather torturous process of adopting three children and fostering for a while, I decided that that the family had to come first. And, of course, all the politics I wanted to do, I could satisfactorily do through my job within the trade unions uh, and so on. And, of course, there had been the minor strike. There was a lot of stuff going on with law reform at the time. I continued to be active in my uh, uh, local Labour Party, active in terms of looking at bits of legislation that could or could not be drafted and so on. So in many ways these these things only really matter if you start off from the perspective that you have an end result at the beginning of your your career rather than you'll see how it develops and what happens at the end of it and uh, you take it as it comes. So you became the Assembly Member for Pontypridd. When you were elected, how did you see yourself doing the job and has it matched your expectations or have things gone in a different way? One, it's just an incredible honour to do it and it's an incredible honour to, you know, it's an incredibly difficult job to do well because within, you know, as the Assembly was becoming increasingly important, you nevertheless still there having to show what the Assembly actually was to get it ingrained in people's minds. And we're still not there. There's still a sort of certain deference to Westminster and there's still a certain lack of understanding about the devolution process. Uh, and I say to people, you know, there's a lot of people now saying sometimes, oh, well, look at this happening and that's happening and so on. Have you seen all the money they wasted on this and that? And the answer I give to them is, yeah, the difference was before you wouldn't know anything about it because it was all London-based and you would have no say on either changing the, the situation, whereas now people know a lot more about what happens in Wales and they do have a much greater say uh, on it. But I, I just started off from the point of view is that, look, when you come into poli- into that sort of political position, sort of later in life, 
Uh, it's really about what are the things you can or can't do that will make a difference. So uh, I, I set sort of three or four priority tasks. Uh, one of them, which is still ongoing, is to get the new railway line to uh, Lantris and Ponticlean on to Bather to get the railway line reopened. We're moving in the right direction on that. That may happen, so fingers crossed on that. The other one was to ensure that the legislation we were doing, that we actually became a proper parliamentary legislature, that is, uh, you know, and I think there are still issues uh, around that, how well we do legislation, obviously very difficult with the numbers and with the increasing responsibilities. But doing legislation properly and ethically in the best way that you can, but also then using it imaginatively within the restrictions and complications there are over our powers on how to improve the condition of working people within Wales. So I thought the Agricultural Wages Bill was, I thought, was a way of uh, within Wales of protecting agricultural workers. I think restricting some of the uh, UK-based legislation on restrictions on trade unions was important. But the real pinnacle, I think, now is what uh, the First Minister is pressing on with, which is a social partnership bill, which would be to establish ethical standards of employment for working people within Wales. And working people, you're talking about 90, 90%, 95% of the population. To ensure that the way we use public money, if companies want public money, they have to show that they, sta- they, they satisfy uh, standards. And of course, this is an issue that emerges now in the general election. And to those who say you can't afford to do things, I, you know, I deeply turn around and say, well, quite frankly, if we're a modern civilised society, we can't afford not to. You know, the problem with our society isn't that there isn't enough money. The problem is who has control of that money uh, and how is it actually used? And, of course, that raises a whole series of uh, arguments. The, uh, the interest of the people and communities in the broader sense as opposed to the individual interest, the person who climbs up the ladder by stepping on the people uh, to, to keep them down approach to society, or those who actually see that we have a common interest and... You know, the one saving grace I think we really do have is that the biggest civilising factor in our society is the National Health Service. And uh, the day the National Health Service goes will be a tragedy for common decency in our society. You mentioned the agricultural wages Mm. bill. You, of course, at the time were the Council General, which was essentially the senior legal no, advisor? No, I was, uh, I, no, I was still, uh, this was in the first term, uh, as Council General later on uh, in uh, the, the second term of the Assembly. So I did look at other bits of legislation, such as the Trade Union Wales Bill, Cayman Act, and, uh, and, and of course uh, some of the other legislation around social care and getting rid of zero-hours contracts within the care sector, which still remains under review. So although I was involved in some of this earlier on, when I became council general, of course, it became a different role. The agricultural wages thing I thought was interesting because we had been previously offered the the, the ability to have responsibility for it. It wasn't accepted then. There was an applied minister who 
basically was told it was too expensive. I think, in, you know, I, I can understand why, why that was decided, other than instinctively it was absolutely wrong because the abolition of sectoral uh, arrangements for, for workers to guarantee their pay and their terms and conditions was something that Thatcher had been getting rid of, the wages councils, for example. And it's really interesting that now, having, having uh, that we see that certainly within the Labour manifesto, to restore the Agricultural uh, Wages Board for, for England. Uh, and, of course, during the... Um, discussions around this you know we have to point out well of course it's only England now that doesn't have an agricultural wages board to protect uh, agricultural workers um, so in many ways it was uh, I, I think a very sort of innovative step forward for the for the assembly to actually adopt this and of course it was challenged by the government in court and it was upheld and of course it made an actual major impact in terms of the understanding of the devolution settlement and probably led to the uh, 2017 Wales Act. Yes, the difficulty, of course, was that it was something of a grey area. Yes. Uh, because before the 2017 Wales Act, we had a situation where there had been an accrual of powers for the Assembly over the years since it was established, but no one was utterly sure uh, the extent to which the powers extended. And so we were getting into that position, weren't we, where if there was something of a, shall we say, progressive nature which the Welsh Government wanted to pursue, Mm -hmm. it could potentially come up against a challenge from the Conservative Government at Westminster on the basis of the fact that they would argue that the devolution settlement did not extend that far. But you, of course, argued very strongly from the other perspective that um, there were ways, and the creative ways, of bringing in something like the Agricultural Wages Board, for example, which... If you are looking at it strictly from the point of view of employment law, employment law is not devolved, so... Uh, no, that's right. And I, th- I think we've had to look imaginative and we've had to push at the, the boundaries. And, you know, you have to be prepared to lose cases. I was really disappointed we lost the asbestos case. Uh, I think even to this day I still don't quite understand the, uh, uh, the arguments why. And I do hope that asbestos case will, in the not-too-distant future... Reemerge now. We have some further powers. Explain what you were trying to do with the uh, asbestos. Well, the asbestos, case. the asbestos uh, bill was basically about uh, looking at ways within our powers where we could give some sort of restorative justice to those who suffered from exposure to asbestos. And so it was not. It would be not just that there would be compensation for the. Uh, individuals who suffered from uh, asbestos disease, but the cost to the NHS uh, would also be recovered back by the government and could then go into more work, whether it be research or whatever, into improving the future for people developing from asbestos, research into that, or possibly even the support and sort of social care for people who had asbestos disease. Uh, and the legislation, of course, passed, uh, in the Assembly, which I was very, very pleased. Had a lot of support from my trade union, the GMB, on this, and in fact all the others, because you know there were so many thousands of people dying and ill from asbestos, many in Wales who'd worked in heavy industry from that. So it was an important, it was a, it was an important issue. But of course, it went to the Supreme Court. It was clear the insurance industry were going to challenge it. Uh, went to the Supreme Court and was rejected three two. So it was a split decision. 
uh, a decision on the most bizarre basis that basically it was a tax-raising uh, measure rather than a uh, restorative measure that was within competence. It's not a position I agree with, but you know when the Supreme Court rules, that becomes that becomes the law. Of course, since then, we've had the 2014 Wales Act, which allows us to develop our own tax-raising powers in certain areas. And uh, I would hope once we get through the first couple of uh, initial tax-raising uh, pieces of legislation, that the asbestos bill, which is there ready and waiting to go, will will reemerge. Uh, and I certainly hope that I can, would help get that done before the uh, certainly in the, perhaps in the next term uh, that it'll, it, it will re, it will reemerge. But it it did change massively the balance in favour of the understanding of the devolution settlement. It led to the Wales Act 2017, which uh, changed the way in which devolution uh, is uh, works for, to a reserved powers model. But there are still as many contradictions and grey areas even within the current settlement. So having sort of gone on to, after being Council General, gone on to be uh, Chair of CLAC, Constitutional and Legislative Affairs Committee, pushing hard now for the Constitutional Convention, uh, which is now part of the Labour Manifesto, uh, and it is a stronger commitment to a, labor, to a, a constitutional convention, uh, which will include what I think is a very radical uh, set of measures uh, proposed by the First Minister, the, you know, the 22 points that have recently been published, which really commit us to looking at a, uh, a massive restructuring of the UK into a more federalised uh, system, a voluntary union of nations. And that really is how I see the future of the UK, a voluntary union of nations with common principles. And I think that is something that everyone could buy into. In fact, I think it's the only realistic way forward for the UK to survive uh, this current uh, turmoil that we're going through. Because there's quite a simplistic argument, isn't there, which says that since the Assembly was founded, and indeed before it was founded, there has been a constitutional obsession and the argument goes that what people are really interested in are bread and butter issues and that mm. all this constitutional stuff may be of interest to the uh, the nerds and anoraks but it has no application. Mm. But you, of course, would argue very much against that, I'm sure, and you would say that getting the constitution right is essential in terms of being able to make tangible improvements in people's lives. Firstly, you're, you're absolutely right that I don't get people raising with me the issue of the Constitution on, on the doorstep, uh, and nor, nor is there any reason particularly why they, 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 they should do, and the bread and butter issues are fundamental. But the point about the Constitution is it is nevertheless uh, incredibly important. It is pure politics. I think I delivered a report from the Constitutional Legislative Affairs Committee where I started off by saying this is probably the most boring report you will ever read, that no one will ever raise it on the doorstep, but it is also one of the most important reports that, uh, that you, will, uh, uh, you will adopt. And the reason for this is, is that the Constitution is what sets out the powers and the rights of people and delineates them, and those impact massively on, on people's lives. And... You know, we, we see what happens when the Constitution doesn't work. 
is that it does impact on people's lives. The division within our society at the moment, rising from the uh, the Brexit issues, the dysfunction we've had in terms of Parliament, the, the uh, inability of Parliament in Westminster to be able to operate, the impact that has then on devolved governments to actually budget. Uh, those things have caused a massive turmoil in people's lives, a lot of frustration and a lot of a lot of anger. Um, so I don't I don't believe there will ever be the day when people turn around and say, "Isn't this uh, isn't this wonderful? Can we can you come over and tell us about the constitution?" But it is fundamentally important that we get this right, that we do resolve these constitutional dysfunctions, because uh, people may not see it, but it will have a massive impact on their quality of life. Are you concerned about the way in which public discourse has been reduced to slogans like this get Brexit done uh, thing, which seems to me to be simply a way of ending debate and shutting things down because we are talking in terms of politics about um, issues which in some senses are simple but in some senses are very complicated and just to have these very trite slogans whichever side of the fence it may be um, is not actually helping is it how do we get through this and how do we get to a more mature situation where people are prepared to discuss things in greater depth I think the issue of political education in schools is is really important. And as we bring in votes at 16, push through the Constitutional Leisure Affairs Committee, the importance of that. And we have to hold government to account on actually delivering, as they promised with education, that there is that function that people are prepared from that early early age. But I think there are major challenges within, within the media. The way in which digital media has become such a massive factor for good but also for bad information and for disinformation. And also the extent to which the printed media, one in Wales is, is, is I think, very, has just been diminishing as an entity compared to a place like Scotland. I know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a global uh, issue, but that we have to start looking at the importance of these in terms of democratic structure. I think the ownership of the media in the UK is massively uh, out of kilter. If the ownership of the media in uh, UK was the same as it is in Ukraine, which it almost is now, we'd be saying it was corruption. In Ukraine, they're saying it is corrupt that you have so many oligarchs owning the media and buying up the buying up news. Yet we've had it within the UK increasingly uh, over the, the past decades as well. Yet we don't seem to recognise that. So in terms of uh, fair regulation as to how the media can be can can operate within a greater responsibility to produce news and information rather than punchlines. I mean, and I'll say this: this I know this is obviously a you know you work for the Western Mail. I find it incredibly frustrating that in the articles that I and others write, which are about perhaps deeper subjects, which get published, and that is fantastic. But they then don't go online. Why don't they go online? They don't go online because we're into a sort of click-type mentality where it is sensational journalism and stories. Uh, so, you know, the, how many people look at it, etc. Well, I can understand from you know, commercial media that uh, how many people looking at something is obviously very, very important. But equally so, there are ethical issues that I think emerge. 
and I'm really quite interested now that as we have this this Welsh journalist Gareth Jones, who of course used to work for the for for the uh, for the Western Mail, uh, who is being held up now in uh, in 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 Ukraine as a uh, sta- as a gold standard of ethical journalism, someone who went out and reported against the odds. Uh, truth, despite the unpopularity and the impact it had on his life, uh, is an interesting uh, example and I think an interesting way to actually promote perhaps the reintroduction within media of ethical standards that there should be a pride, you know, that uh, uh, in, in what people write. When I look at some of the stuff that has happened, for example, during this election campaign, and you think, you know, if I was a journalist... You know, could I go home and sleep at having done that? The stuff about did Jeremy Corbyn nod his head at a remembrance session, you know, uh, or, or so, you know, those sorts of stories which, you know, clearly are fabricated more towards the interests of the owners or a particular political line than uh, they are about genuine journalism. So I think the whole, the whole issue of ethical journalism is, uh, is something that is under pressure as well within this environment and I don't say that any of this is easy to do but you know I suppose as a lawyer it just always seems to me easier to start off and saying what is what is the gold standard you want to achieve uh, and how do you try and arrange that all, all these aspects that make up our media and information services work towards that. McAntonish thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.